Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, if you thought that we would run out of topics to talk about and guests to interview after 200 episodes, you may not be inherently a fraud fighter <laughs> because as we all know in fraud, there are endless topics to discuss and you know ways to do things and different perspectives and ways to look at things that we could talk about the same topic for five different episodes and barely have any crossover. But that's another reason why this podcast is so important. And I mentioned that in my conversation with Lucas Walker on Tuesday's episode, is that we're an emerging industry. There isn't one set way to do things, nor will there probably ever be just one set of way of doing things. There's a lot of nuance in this industry, but we still need to learn from each other and we still need to I mean, that's the only way we know how to learn, right? Otherwise, everyone is starting off at zero. And if every company that realizes that they have to have a fraud department or somebody in charge of fraud, let's be honest, oftentimes it's they realize it later or then probably they could. But if every new company online or new bank or new financial institution or fintech was always starting back at one or zero when they started in this space and they didn't have any point of reference or any resources or any peers to talk to, then we'd really be up a creek without a paddle, as they say, right? Because fraudsters are continually learning from each other and building off of that. And I, I can't tell you how many times the fact that I have a pretty good memory, a good long-term memory, my short-term memory, not so great. When it comes to like remembering to text someone back or whatever, I, not so great, but or where I put my keys. But I don't know how many times somebody has asked me about a new fraud trend to them. And I think about it for a minute and I think, oh, wow, that's really similar to another method that was used 10 years ago. It's just got a different spin on it. So really the purpose of this podcast, but also, you know, everything else that I work on for fraudology is really to propel and provide support for education and collaboration information sharing really, right? And one of those things beyond the podcast that I'm so proud of, and I know I haven't talked about it in a little while, and I'll tell you why in a minute, is the first annual Fraudology Benchmarking Survey. Honestly, guys, I don't think I've been so proud of something in a really long time. I am my own worst critic, as I think a lot of us are. So I put the bar really high, and oftentimes I put it too high for myself, but this time I think we've really reached it and exceeded it. If you haven't heard me talk at all about it, I have long known that there is, has been a need for a reliable survey. So the purpose of the, you know, Fraudology Benchmarking Survey is something that I've long known that this industry needs, and that is to identify best practices or what really is best in class for e-commerce, B2C, fintechs, consumer lending, marketplaces, etc. Not as much banks and financial institutions, although I think you will learn a lot from the study as well. So I, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. And but there are certain things I just I knew I couldn't do it on my own for lots of reasons. I have worked on and helped out on other s surveys in the past for 
companies I've worked with before. And I know what goes into it. And I know I couldn't do it all. I mean, primarily, it takes a lot of money. If you want statistically relevant and reliable data, you should be employing a, you know, a company that really focuses on surveys. And then the other was maybe I could, but it would take me too long to write a high level report. But two things happened last fall that made this a reality. And one is that Shoshana Marini, a good friend of the podcast, she's been on a few times before. She'll actually be joining me soon in the next couple of weeks. She's the co-author of Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing. She decided to go freelance. And so she had a little bit more time. She was working full time in marketing. And I've never met anyone in content marketing in this industry that knows this industry as well as she does has never actually been a fraud analyst and so the audience she knows this space so well and writes about it so well so I knew hey would you be willing to you know write a white paper for me if I can maybe get a sponsor for this and then I had kind of mentioned it just off the cuff on an episode because it was probably because it was top of mind because it was something that I thought maybe could happen because Shoshana was available and the chief marketing officer at Forder listened to that episode and said, you know, we'd really like to help you do this. We agree. We know when we talk to merchants, they don't always know what their rates are. And if they do know what their chargeback rate and their approval rate, what their KPIs are, they don't always know if it's good or bad. And they might assume that something's really good when it's when there's so much room for improvement. Or we just recognize how helpful this will be to the industry and we really want to support it. And I was kind of a pain and I was like, well, this is what I need from a sponsor. I need them to help pay for it and I need them to provide a voice and input, but we get veto power and we own the survey. He was like, absolutely. And so we got so much autonomy to be able to build a survey the way that merchants need it to be. Because too often surveys aren't written by the people who do the jobs. And so the language doesn't make sense or the they might say, what's your what's your chargeback rate? Well, not knowing that there might be three or four, there are three or four different ways to measure that. So we really spelled it out. And that's one of the reasons why it took so long. We kicked off the project in November of last year, but writing the questions and paring them down was a task in itself. And then the survey company and myself, and thank you to so many of you who listened to the podcast who filled it out as well, sent out the survey and we had over 500 e-commerce professionals who are in charge and own fraud, fraud prevention metrics and KPIs in their role for e-commerce companies. And they were of all sizes from, honestly, they were, they were mostly mid to enterprise level. So all of you that listen to this podcast, they're going to be your peers. You know, how can you compare your team's performance amongst your peers in a reliable data centered way? Ultimately, my end goal more than anything is, well, and this is why we were so thoughtful and intentional and took so long was because, you know, if this is the first annual, and I hope that this will continually be an annual study that now that we've done the hard work, it will take a lot less time next time. But like, it was extremely important to us to be thoughtful and intentional and to be able to give you data that will help e-commerce fraud fighters do your jobs better, to make decisions and communicate your performance and impact to your leadership. And as all fraud fighters know, just being given data or like a statistic, it doesn't have value to us until we know everything that's behind it and what the context is. So like who filled it out? Was it just the people that use such and such provider or is it an assortment? Are they just small companies? Are they just big companies? Are they, are they like me? How were they all calculating their metrics the same way? Were the answer options realistic? That was a big complaint of a recent survey that came out last year was they really only have two buckets of 
companies under 500 million a year and over 500 million a year. And companies that are over 500 million a year are like, there is such a huge difference in how companies are running their fraud teams and how many resources they have and what their rates are and everything between a $500 million company a year and a $4 billion company a year. Or what about even higher, right? So having every single answer, we were trying to make sure that there was enough room for that they were all realistic and that there were lots of options or the right options really so that you could gather the right information. So I'm talking about that because the report is about to be released. And one of the biggest metrics that just flew off the page to me and I was like, I need to talk about this on the podcast as soon as possible is false positives or false declines or insult rate, right? So basically, you know, those orders or accounts that are canceled due to, you know, a suspicion of fraud, it looks risky, but because there's no feedback loop, you get a chargeback for an order that was approved. So if you get a fraud chargeback and you go back in hindsight, you're like, oh, that was definitely third-party fraud. Now you have that feedback loop to feed into your model and to know. Right. So then you can say, oh, this is our chargeback rate. These are the fraud chargebacks that we didn't catch, that we didn't identify. And then here's how we're going to put them back into our models or into write a rule about them or, or however you do that. I wish I was more surprised, but I still was a little shocked that not many people understand the importance of this. They don't understand the importance of measuring your false positives, of having this as a KPI or why it matters. So I think that you know, once I wrote out like six pages of an outline, because being an underachiever has never been my problem. It's been quite opposite. I realized this is going to need to be a two-parter. So the second half will be next week. But today I'm going to talk about why false positives are important. And even though they're hard to measure, right? And talk about why they're hard to measure. And then I'm going to show the survey results for the questions about false positives and why they both did and didn't surprise me and what you can learn from them. And then I think I'm also going to talk about why they're just so important to measure, especially so even though they're hard to measure, why are they so important to measure? And now more than ever they are. And there's a pretty big reason for it. And I'll share that in a little bit today. And then next week, I'm going to talk about the, some of the ways of measuring it. So the standard ways of measuring them over the last several years. And then I'm also going to share some newer, more productized ways that some innovative merchants and some of them have worked with their vendors to measure them in a more statistical way that's also a lot less manual. And then I'm also going to talk about how you can use your false positive information to really improve that number. How do you use the feedback loop that you get from measuring and identifying false positives to make sure that you have a lot less? I think one of the biggest things I've been noticing over, I don't know, I don't know how long it's been, at least a year, is that it seems like we've gone from wanting to continually improve KPIs and say, you know, our KPIs aren't perfect until we have close to humanly possible of an approval rate of high 90% and then, you know, chargebacks in the, you know, maybe 75 basis points. That will be ideal. And we're going to keep working on that till it happens. Instead, I've seen so you will kind of almost get complacent and I'm not blaming you. I think I know there are a lot of factors at play that go to this, but instead the goal has started to become, let's just keep our chargeback rate under this percent and let's just keep our approval rate over this percent. And guys, if you think about how much, I mean, I don't know if you've ever, if you haven't done this, I highly recommend it. 
Have you ever measured or calculated how much one single basis point would be to your company if you were to improve your approval rate or you were to reduce your chargeback rate? And one basis point is a hundredth of a percent. So 0.01%. I did the math the other day when I was finishing up writing the report for the benchmarking report. And I kind of blew me away. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't know it. If you're a $3 billion company, one basis point is $30 million. So why are you okay with, you know, declining 10% of your transactions? That's a lot of money. And if you could just make it 9.9% or 5%, think of how much more money you can return to your bottom line and tell your leadership, hey, look at how much money we just brought back into the company. And not only that, but most of these transactions that we were declining were new customers that when we declined them, you know, when we had a false positive, they often would just go to our competitor. And they're not just going to our competitor for the first transaction, they're doing that for their lifetime value. And we're also losing out on opportunities to sell them more things through marketing emails, etc. And not only that, we're also losing our customer acquisition costs, how much our marketing department paid to have that customer go through our site, find something, you know, sometimes it's through a promo code, sometimes it's through advertising, all marketing teams have what they call a CAC, a customer acquisition cost. And for every new customer you're declining, you're throwing that money away too. So the reason I bring that up is it's just, I think it's really important that we always wanna be better. And one of the ways that we can do that is by measuring false positives. Because to me, measuring your false positives is like your accuracy rate. That's telling you how accurate are we? How accurate is the system that we rely on? Is it, does it need more improvements? Does it need better rule sets, better model? Does it need, you know, an additional layer? Does it need to be replaced? I wish that that wasn't going to be the case. And it wasn't the case as much as it has been lately, but every business has to make business decisions. And some solution providers that have systems that e-commerce companies rely on to give them that high accuracy have made business decisions not to invest in research and development, to not improve their accuracy. Or maybe when you dive into your false positives, you realize that actually the system is doing a pretty good job, but it's the false declines by manual work. So where are some opportunities for training? Or oftentimes it's that good customers are looking risky. What extra data can you gather that help you to be more trusting that that's accurate, right? That that person isn't gonna file a third party chargeback. So these are the survey report and I can't wait to share some of the other survey results. I really, really want to share approval rates. Um, and I, to be fair, I mean, I can, I'm, I'm very grateful that Porter gave us as much autonomy as they did, but I really just want to focus on false positives today. Let me just tell you that based on approval rates and chargeback rates, there's a lot of room and I bet false positives are high. Also, I'll say that there, it was really significant how high the approval rates, so the percentage of orders that fraud systems and fraud teams are approving, they feel confident those aren't fraud. How high their approval rates are and how low their chargeback rate is, which again, those are for all intents and purposes. I mean, we know it's full of first party fraud, but that's also how you measure the third party fraud that you aren't identifying. And companies with annual revenue in their digital channels of more than $3 billion, so really the industry leaders, the top, 100 or 200, I don't know off the top of my head how many e-commerce companies that is, they're all recognizable brands. By far, their rates are so much more accurate and so much better than 
merchants that have revenue around 500 million or even one or two billion dollars. But it shows that they really have realized that those margins, those basis points are worth a ton to them and it's worth it to continually improve and not just set a baseline and say, hey, as long as we stay below this or above that, we're fine, whatever, we're good. And, but there's, you know, all right, I'm gonna introduce the elephant in the room before I share the results, right? I, mean, I get this. It is impossible to have an absolutely 100% accurate false positive rate. It, it just is, right? You'll never know because you don't have a feedback. Even if every single customer who gets canceled calls into customer service, well, how do you know if they're fraud or not fraud and all those other things? But we know that a lot of them just go away. They just drop off. They figure it was their bank or they try one more time and then your fraud system really thinks that they're fraudulent because heaven forbid they try a second time. And, you know, especially if they use the same information, it's going to be declined again. So they're gone, right? You don't have that. Yeah. So it's impossible to measure something that never happens, right? Totally get it. However, just because you can't measure it perfectly doesn't mean you can't measure anything, right? It doesn't mean you should just give up. And this is kind of what the, the survey told us that just, I think, is very fascinating and telling. So the question was, do you calculate your company's annual false positive rate? And 57% said yes, which is good. But that means that 43% said no, almost 50%. And not only that, but 21% of the people who said no, so half of the people who said no, said, no, we don't measure it, but I'm not worried about it. That's insane. And 21%. So that's out of over 500 merchants, that's over 100 companies who said, yeah, we don't, we don't measure it. And I don't care. I'm not worried about it. What? So you believe that Every decision that's made by the system that you selected and by your processes and your team and everything else are 100% accurate? Wow, and you don't even want to know if there's room for improvement? Guys, that's just crazy to me. And and I know that too many merchants have just decided that, that since it can't be you know measured perfectly that they shouldn't measure it at all. But that's so dangerous because then, then you're just looking at your approval rates and your chargeback rates. But if you don't know exactly where those should be or you don't have a way to measure the ones that come back and say, you know, was it fraud or that it appears it wasn't fraud or that it wasn't going to be fraud, then how are you going to improve? It just, it blows my mind. I'm trying so hard not to get my disappointed mom voice. And like I said, false positives don't just lose your company that one transaction, right? So it's all these other things behind it. Even if you just had one customer that was declined wrongly and you had every transaction in your company is $500, that's an extra $500 you could have added to your company's revenue. And then say that, you know, your average customer spends $2,500 in their lifetime on your website. And that's always average, right? But these are metrics that e-commerce companies measure all the time. So that's an extra $2,500. But I promise you that it's not one, it's thousands. So now we're talking about, I'm doing quick math in my head here, but $2.5 million a year, if you're just talking about a thousand, a thousand of those customers, actually that's 2.5 million in lifetime, but still it would be, oh my gosh, I'm still doing math and I'm like, I want to say that, oh my gosh, so say that you have a thousand customers that you declined on accident or incorrectly, right? They looked risky. You were trying to be overly cautious to avoid chargebacks. Then if your average transaction is $500 and that's a thousand of them, that's 500, that's a half a million dollars that you could add into your revenue. And I guarantee you, especially based on all the companies I've worked with over the years, it's like 
tens of percentage point. It's so much more than that. It's it's kind of ridiculous. And especially over the last few years, as I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. So sometimes people will ask me like what the average false positive rate is. And this is something I really wanted to talk about. So as if there's like a universal standard. And that was something that I would love to get to eventually in this in the Phrology Benchmarking Survey. But we didn't ask that question. And here's why. I know that some surveys in the past have asked respondents what their false positive or their insult rate is when they find an average. But that's assuming that A, everyone has measured it the same way. Or actually, first you're assuming that everyone measures it. And then you're assuming that they all measure it in exactly the same way. We had six different methods of measuring false positives on this survey. And there are several more. And it was pretty evenly distributed. So that tells me that you know, nobody's measuring it the same way. So if you ask everyone, what's your false positive rate? And they're all measuring completely different things. Sure, you can give an average, but like, what does that tell you? Until these two things happen, like there won't be an industry standard of false positives that I would feel comfortable sharing or giving out for anyone to use or believe is reliable. But I actually don't think that it's important or helpful to have an industry average. Might be controversial, but I'll tell you why. You know, assuming that we even... Even assuming if everyone calculated it the same way, I still don't think it would be helpful. You know, one reason is because an industry average would be greatly impacted by the provider used by the highest number of merchants, but also the processes and everything else are so different. But there are some providers that legitimately have a 90% false positive rate. And I know that from some of their clients or former customers sharing that with me. 90%. So 90% of all the orders they're canceling would never turn into chargebacks. And therefore you're canceling 90% of the orders you're canceling is revenue that could go to your company. Whether the economy's bad or not, that's amazing. But especially now when so many e-commerce companies are looking and other types of companies too, are looking for any way to just cut a little bit here or there. They'll cut someone's salary, right? How many salaries are within, you know, 90% of the orders you cancel? Bring that to your leader and go, excuse me, I, I assume I'm keeping my job now. And that doesn't mean, I mean, obviously there have been some really, really incredible fraud fighters and trust and safety people who have been laid off lately. So it is not saying they have not done their job well. But my point is that at some point, I think your companies will come to you at some point, you know, so the wife of the CEO or the girlfriend of a board member is going to have an order canceled and they're going to, you know, ask you why. And most e-commerce fraud systems no longer have a, a black box because they have learned that merchants need that data internally for so many things. They can't just trust you with what score you provide or what you say is good or bad. But whenever that happens, the next question is, well, we know they weren't using a stolen credit card. So how many other people have placed orders on our website that you canceled that would have been good revenue? And then you're like, whew. But it's better to get ahead of that and be proactive and say, hey, we wanted to do our part and really audit our systems and our processes. Make sure that our accuracy is correct. Make sure that we're not turning away good money, you know, to prevent getting bad money and having to give it back. So because there's such a big impact on who the provider is, unless we said, okay, we're gonna, you know, 50 companies from this provider and 50 companies from that provider. Well, then we don't know the company's processes internally. So what I'm saying is there's just too many variables for there to be an industry standard. Also, I mean, if we're being technical here, there really shouldn't be a false positive rate that's considered standard or okay, right? We should always be working towards zero. And that's what I mean by the difference between 
continually trying to learn and improve and just saying, okay, as long as we're over this and this, we're fine. And I know that there are some vendor contracts that are written that way, right? That vendors will say, hey, we feel so confident that we'll be able to keep your approvals over this and your chargebacks under that. That doesn't mean that that should be the bar. I mean, you should be constantly trying to get better and better and asking your provider how you can get better. And hopefully they'll want to help you, right? If it's something that they don't have, maybe they can share with you how, you know, there's another, if there's a partner that they work with that can provide another layer, or maybe their product team will work with you to create a new product. Jenna at Snipes talked about that the other day about, or I guess it was like two weeks ago now, but it feels like the other day, you know, how they saw bots go up so much, purchasing bots. And so she went to Forder and said, hey, could you guys work with me to build a pre-auth product that would help weed out these bots before we even send any of these cards to banks to find out if there's money on them and, and go through the payments process? And I've heard great things about Forder and a couple of other companies too that have done that in partnership with their companies because they understand that one, if one of their customers is having that problem, more probably are and would benefit from it. But two, everyone should be continually trying to improve. It's not just the merchants, right? It's the people supporting the merchants. Those solution providers should care almost as much about their customer's customer as their customer cares about their customer. That's not always the case, but that's what should be happening. And it shouldn't just be about avoiding fraud. It should be about maximizing revenue and avoiding fraud. So while it's important to measure your own false positive rate, so you can have a metric to know how much opportunity there is for change and changes revenue, really, right? Getting better means more money, more customers, you know, more ability to brag in your leadership of like, hey, I increased revenue by X. Did marketing do that? Maybe you don't say that last part, but... <laughs> Some of the companies that I've worked with in my consultancy, it's kind of insane. I mean, I always give, when I just hear, you know, a couple of different things in our discovery call, I'll say, okay, well, conservatively, I think that we can retain or recover X, but it's almost always higher than that. And it's crazy how much opportunity there is. And sometimes you just don't know it, right? We all get a pattern. We think, okay, well, I know fraud's a lot right now, so we're probably doing the best we can. Well, there's always room to improve. And you know, once you improve now, there's going to be so many more because once fraudsters find a way to monetize what you sell, you know, the products and services that you sell, they're not going quite away quietly. So they're going to keep finding new vulnerabilities. So there will always be room for improvement. It should be continuous improvement. You should be looking at your metrics every month, evaluating your processes and your systems at least once a year. Like it should be something that's just inherent. And I know it can be hard sometimes to work in some of those processes because you're also putting out so many fires all the time. But when you have these processes in mind, that's less fires. Think of how many less people will be calling customer service and how many less calls in escalation or emails in escalation calls will be coming to your team if you are canceling less transactions that are good. Like it just cleaning all this up and streamlining it is for the better. You'll have less fires to put out in the day to day too. I know this from experience. I promise I'm not just saying this to say it. But my whole point is a false positive rate should be an internal metric and not one that you just compare to the industry. There was a merchant a couple of months ago who was really wanted to find an industry metric for false positives. And I said, well, how are they being measured? I don't care. I just need a number. And I was like, why? Like, I don't care if it's right. I don't care who wrote it. I just need a false positive number so I can show my boss that this is the industry average. But I said, well, how can you know that that industry average is how many you have? You don't know anything about the behind the scenes of how that number came to be or if they're measuring the same thing or 
all the points I just made. And they basically said, I don't care. It's just that my boss wants to know how many good transactions we're canceling. So I just want to give them an internal industry average. <laughs> so I said, that doesn't really do any good. That's not a reflection of how many good transactions your company is declining. It's not the same, right? So that's my whole point. I'm not going to go down the road too much, but instead it's important to compare your approval rates and your chargeback rates with your peers, because that helps you know what's possible and where you should be aiming. If you are, there were some, I'm not going to say how many, but there were some respondents who said that their approval rates, their transaction approval rates are less than 85%. So they're canceling 15% of orders. And a lot of them, their chargebacks were, you know, over the 1% threshold. So they're canceling a lot of transactions, but not always the good ones. That tells you the information you need to know when you compare it to the, the bigger companies, the ones who you know, have been doing this the longest because they're, they were the first targets, the ones that fraud costs the most for because they're so large and their basis points are worth even more than yours. When you look at theirs and a majority or a strong majority have approval rates over 98% and chargebacks under 0.5%, then you can look at that delta and say, okay, they have more transactions than us. They have everything else. And sure, they might have more budget than you, but that doesn't really mean anything because you're paying per volume. So if your volume is lower, you're going to pay less than them. So you can look at those two things and know that there's area for improvement. That's what you should be measuring with your peers, but your false positive should still be measured. I hope I've at least gotten that. <laughs> I think I've made that point today, right? So I talked about how many people or how many companies calculate their annual false positive rate, how many don't. Then the next one is how do you measure your annual false positive rate? And let me go into this more next week, but the majority of people are doing it through reviewing and QAing either all transactions that are automatically canceled by fraud systems due to fraud or a sample set of the transactions that are automatically canceled by fraud systems or the ones that have been manually reviewed. So by far, those were the most common. So depending on the size of your company, depending on your resources internally, after the fact, you know, a day or a couple weeks after, going back and manually looking at 10% of the orders that were canceled total and doing like a reverse engineering of that order. And you might have more information about it now. You might see that that same email address attempted four more orders after they placed that one on four different credit cards. Okay, that's probably not a false positive. But then you might see that Somebody called in and gave more information and then they were able to place a successful order because it didn't look risky anymore. Or maybe they changed their payment and that would be a false positive. Or they may not have called in or contacted at all, but you look at it and you're like, huh, I'm not sure. You know, just had another set of eyes, right? I don't know how many times I've dove into data and just had extra context and thought, well, yeah, they're shipping to a different address than the billing, but it's a college. And if you look at the person's Facebook or, well, probably Instagram or TikTok now, with the email they provide us, it goes to their Facebook page or their Instagram and it shows that they're in college or things like that, right? Extra context. Husband's credit card with their home address shipping to the wife's business. And then, you know, maybe they try a couple times and try to ship to different addresses because they just want this item. That doesn't always mean that it's fraud, but I, I had a fraud team of a client of mine a few years ago that was just absolutely convinced that this order was fraud. It was a $30,000 order. 
and everything else was fine. When he called the phone number, it went to the wife's work and you could ask to speak with her. And I get it. You cannot pick up the phone and call everyone who orders. But like, those are the things when a manager can, can focus on just 10% and, you know, in one day a week or whatever it is, right? Or a supervisor or someone like that. Maybe they have a little bit more time to pick up the phone and call and say, oh, this phone number doesn't exist or, you know, something like that. Or I just had a lovely call with a customer who was really bummed that they couldn't take advantage of that sale. That's one way that you can get false positives. And like I said, I'm going to talk about more of them on next week's episode because there's some really innovative ways that I think you guys can learn from. And again, that's what it's all about, right? Information sharing. Oh, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a systematic way that we can, you know, tweak our fraud system to do an A-B test or do different, you know, different things like that. And we can get a better handle on it and not need to use the main resources. So there's more than one way to do it. But the important thing is that you measure something. Because if you don't measure anything, then how do you know what to improve? I do know, and I think everyone has said this, that from all the companies I've talked to, the ones who are continually improving, the ones that are focused on continually improving, don't just stay stagnant measuring something, right? They don't just, their measurements never stay stagnant because they keep wanting to improve. They know that the false positive rate won't be absolutely perfect. But like I said, if you don't measure something, how do you know that anything needs to improve? And I think because I promised it today, one of the things I just want to tack on at the end here is, one of the things I want to tack on here is just why it's especially important and critical now to measure your false positives more than it even was three or four or five years ago. Fraud's getting harder to detect. It's getting a lot more sophisticated. So some providers, especially if they're liable for transaction amounts of fraud chargebacks, some providers or some merchants in their manual review will be overly cautious. And like I said before, sometimes your provider is going to make the best business decision for them and not you and not you and your customers, right? They're looking at their bottom line. If they're responsible for that fraud chargeback, well, gosh, if you've got a high AOB and they know that fraud is harder to detect, they're going to overshoot it, right? They're going to expand the net, right? If you're net fishing, they're going to expand that net further to make sure that they catch as much as they can. And that's just the way it is. And I've seen this happen a lot. And you might say, oh, well, I'm on them or, oh, we have a contract, but just to make sure, right? It's good to be diligent. I don't think anyone's going to blame you for saying, hey, we want to improve. And if your provider wants to keep you as a customer, they'll want you to improve too. They'll want you to reduce your false positives too. I mean, quite honestly, most providers only get paid. Well, if we're looking at the providers that are paying, are liable for fraud chargebacks, most of those providers only get paid on the transactions that they approve. So if they can help you feel more confident or you can help them feel more confident approving more orders, that's more money for them and for you, right? So... <laughs> Hopefully they see it that way too. The other reason why it's especially important and critical to be looking at your false positives and continually wanting to increase your approval rates. I think I said this on Tuesday's episode too, a little bit, but good customer behavior now looks a lot like risky behavior did three or four or five years ago. There you know, was a fraud provider. I don't know if they still do. That would decline anything that had an order that was made on a VPN. But VPNs are so commonly relied on now for internet privacy. Or, you know, how many devices do you have, right? Are you doing it, you know, you're placing orders on your phone when you're off on mobile device. Well, sometimes fraud orders look like that too. Like sometimes they'll be on a mobile device too. So just different things like that. So if your provider hasn't invested in improving 
or having continual analysis on the back end to really improve the models specific to the type of company you are and some of the other characteristics, well then they're not just not catching the new fraud, they're also canceling a lot of good orders. And I wouldn't be talking about this as much if it wasn't the case of how many, and just wait until I tell you guys, what percentage of survey respondents said that they had an approval rate of under 85% or even under 95%. You'll understand where I'm coming from. I've even talked to a couple of merchants recently and I'll actually be working with them in my consultancy and I'm really excited to see, you know, how much greater we can be. But, you know, a couple of them had approval rates under 60%. They were declining 40% of their order. They are declining 40% of their orders and they're not that high risk, but they're trusting systems that are just not right for their business. They might be right for smaller company. They might be right for lower dollar transactions, but their fraud providers telling them that 40% of their orders are fraud. That's just not possible. So if you know the product that you're relying on to tell you what order should be manually reviewed or which order should be canceled hasn't isn't continually improving too, well then they're gonna keep overshooting it. They're gonna guess that everything is fraud. Now, the majority of fraud providers, their entire goal is to make sure that they prevent fraud on your system. It's not their goal to make sure that you know, as many good customers go through too. I mean, it's important to try to work with a fraud provider who does believe that very much. And there's at least one or two out there that do. And trust me, I wish it was more, but I hear a lot. <laughs> I can't overstate how much feedback I hear about every company in this space. And unfortunately, over the last year or two, it's gotten harder for me to recommend more than two core fraud providers. And I wish that wasn't the case. I remember the day when it wasn't. But it's either, you know, a lot of it's based on the product. Some of it's based on their customer service or their pricing or other things like that. But I have a my own rule about, you know, when I'm recommending companies. And I try really hard to stay on the positive side of that when I'm asked by a merchant, who should I talk to? But there's been a few that two, three years ago, I would stand behind. One or two of them even a year ago. I thought were great until at least three or four of their clients let me know, hey, we're leaving or this changed or that changed or whatever. And they have to be pretty significantly bad for me to just go, I don't feel good about it, about saying you know, good things, right? I try really hard not to say the negative things, but you're just saying, hey, these are the companies that I feel comfortable sponsoring my podcast. These are the companies that I feel comfortable referring people to, especially clients, but anyone who asks, right? I'm not going to steer them wrong. My reputation means a lot to me and your guys' trust means even more. But there have been a couple that I have had to let the companies know recently that, hey, I have heard too much of the exact same complaint and their significant complaints about either the way that they're being talked to or treated or not being responded to, et cetera. But a lot of times it's the complacency. It's the false positives are too high. But if you're not measuring your false positives, how do you know if it could be better? So that is the first half of this. Next week, I will dive into a little bit more about how, I guess what I should say is more of the manual ways of measuring false positives, but then also some of the more innovative and productized and systemized approaches that I think are really interesting. That I think even if the exact method wouldn't work for you, it, it might inspire something else. So, and then because I'm so big on root cause analysis, because that really is the only and best way to improve all of these things, I'll talk about how to use your false positive rate as well as the orders and the data that make up that false positive rate to greatly reduce it over time. I honestly was kind of debating about whether I was going to dive into that with as much detail as I think I am, because that is some of what I do in you know my consulting work. But honestly, this survey shows me more than ever. This survey results show me more than ever that 
This information is needed and it's important. And ultimately, I just want to help you do your job better. I want to support you. And knowledge is power, right? You can't know what to improve or what's possible if you don't have data. So I am so excited to provide that report to you. Hopefully it'll be done in the next two weeks or so. We're hoping by uh, June 20th at the latest. I'll give all the information about how to download that. And also I'm going to have Shoshana on to talk more about some of these bigger, well, false pauses is big. So I can't wait to share some of those results with you. And I look forward to talking with you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.